the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. When Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to comfort Martha and Mary concerning their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house seated. Martha said to him, Lord, if you've been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And she said, I know that he will rise again on the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. What is Jesus claiming when he says, I am the resurrection and the life? As we continue through this series, looking at the seven I am statements of Jesus in John's gospel, we're confronted with Jesus claiming to know what we truly need. In this case, when he says, I'm the resurrection and the life, he's saying... I know your deepest fear, the fear that in fact is behind every other fear, and I'm telling you that I am the solution to that greatest fear of yours. See, whether we want to admit it or not, in our life, in our world, we fear death. We spend a lot of time and a lot of money trying to deny death or ignore the fact that death is before us. This is why funerals are such awkward moments, because we have to step out for a moment out of this death-denying culture and for a moment acknowledge that someone has died. It's before us always. No one gets out of this life without experiencing death unless the Lord comes tomorrow. It's like the three men who were at the funeral, uh, at a funeral of a friend, and afterwards the three men are talking and they say to one another, well, what would you like said at your funeral? And the first man says, well, here's what I want to hear at my funeral, that he was a great leader of men. And the second says, I know what I want to hear at my funeral, that he was a great husband and father. And the third says, here's what I want to hear at my funeral. Look, I think he's moving. Ernest Becker, in his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Denial of Death, says this. He says, modern man is drinking and drugging himself out of an awareness of death, or he spends his time shopping, which is the same thing. What is Jesus claiming when he says, I am the resurrection and the life? He's claiming that in him, death is denounced. You know the word denounce? Publicly calling out something as evil? In Jesus, 
Death is called out for what it is. Evil and wrong denounces death. But also when he says, I'm the resurrection and the life, he's also saying he's the one who will defeat death. It's one thing to denounce it. It's another thing to do something about it. That in his life and death and resurrection, he will defeat death. But not only does he denounce death and defeat death, but for our lives, Jesus will disarm the reality of death. He will take the sting of death away from us. He will give us the power to no longer fear death, to no longer have to deny or ignore death, but instead to face the reality of death face on, disarming death. See, first, Jesus is claiming that in him, death is denounced. The story begins at a funeral. Verse 17 tells us that when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. This is John's way of making clear to us that Lazarus is fully and completely dead. This is not to be mistaken for a moment with Billy Crystal in The Princess Bride with Miracle Max when he says, and if you don't know Princess Bride, you won't know how to relate to anyone under 40. <laughs> when he says, Miracle Max, woo-hoo-hoo, look who knows so much. It just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. With all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing you can do. Go through his clothes and look for loose change. <laughs> John is saying Lazarus is fully dead. Four days in the tomb. And what's incredible is Jesus' response when he comes to the tomb. It's a profound response Jesus has. See, we all have heard at many funerals, verse 35, where we're told Jesus wept. It's an act of sorrow, an act of compassion. But Jesus does more than weep when he comes to the grave. See, in verse 33 and verse 38, we're told that when he comes to the grave, when he comes to the tomb, he's deeply moved. And that word in the Greek is not fully understood when we translate it deeply moved. Deeply moved in the Greek means Jesus comes to the grave and is indignant. He's angered. He's frustrated. He's got inner turmoil. Jesus comes to his grave and the original root of the word means a primal snorting like that of an animal. Jesus comes to the grave and has a profound, angry, indignant response. As the message translates, a deep anger welled up within him. In the face of death, Jesus is angry because the world he made was not to include death. Remember how John begins his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him. In him was life, and that life 
was the light of men. Jesus is angry in the face of death because he says, when my father and I built this world, we built a world of life, not one of death. Death is an alien intruder. Death is an enemy. Death is a corruption. Death is to be denounced. But death came because of our sin. Jesus is angered in the face of death, knowing that it was our sin that brought death into the mix. I remember as a new believer, I struggled with this idea that the wages of sin is death. That that death comes because of sin. I say, God, isn't that a bit of an overreaction? Like Romans 5, 12, that says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. But as we read the story of scripture, we see in Genesis 1 and 2, the point is that all life is given and is sustained by God. All life. There is no life, the Bible says, without God making life and sustaining life. And therefore, to break with God through our sin is ultimately to break with life. This is the natural consequences of rebelling through our sin against the one who gives and sustains life. And we realize, suddenly as we look at the Genesis accounts, that Luke John chapter 11 is not the first time that somebody, God, snorted at death, was indignant at death, was angry at death. You see, you only need to look at Genesis chapter 3. That story of the fall, Adam and Eve in rebellion, rebelling against God and their sin. What happens? The result of their sin, Genesis 3.8 says, and the man and woman heard the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And you hear those words and they hide from God. And you hear those words and you think, oh, what a sort of picturesque moment. God is strolling through his creation. But many commentators have said that the word, the cool of the day that God is walking through the garden in, cool is the word ruach, the word wind, breath of God, the wind. What is the wind of the day? Well, in some ancient forms of Hebrew, The day actually describes a storm. So all of a sudden, it means that at the moment of humanity's sin, they hear God coming through the garden, not for some picturesque walk of Yahweh stumbling through the garden, playing a bit of hide and seek, where are you? But rather God comes in a windstorm of judgment and demands to those who broke his creation, where are you? Do you not see what you have done? You have broken everything. In your rebellion, you have broken yourselves. You will die now. In the face of death, Jesus is indignant. He is angry. He renounces death as an evil usurping invader that never belonged. And there is great comfort in that. Hear me, there is great comfort that Jesus is indignant and angry at death. Because it means when a 17-month-old takes a bullet in the face in Odessa, my God is angry about it. Not passive. Not apathetic. We have a God who is passionate 
As Psalm 115 says, precious in the sight of the Lord of the death of his saints. Jesus is denouncing death and therefore he's denouncing my death and yours. This does not belong. But thanks be to God, he doesn't just denounce it. He does something about it. His sorrow and his anger moves him to action. Jesus, when he says, I'm the resurrection and the life, is declaring that he is going to defeat death, not just denounce it. He's going to be the cure. See, in verses 38 and 39, again, those words of Jesus' indignation, we read this, then Jesus, deeply moved, indignant, angry, snorting, came to the tomb. It was a cave. A stone lay against it, and Jesus said, take away the stone. Now, what follows is a bit of argument about we don't want to take the stone away. It's been four days. And finally, they obey. And verse 43, when they, he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, stones rolled away from tombs and linen strips wrapped around people sounds like something you've heard before. It's supposed to. Jesus is in this story with Lazarus foreshadowing what is about to come in his own life. Lazarus and his resurrection becomes a sign and a symbol of what is about to come. For first, verse 18 tells us, that Bethany, John says, was near Jerusalem. Near Jerusalem, two miles off. Jesus is almost at Jerusalem, John is saying. He's saying, pay attention. It is at Jerusalem where he himself will bear the death that belongs to us, will pay the penalty for all the sin of humanity that brought death in the first place. As Isaiah 53 says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. It is a Jerusalem where Jesus will rise victorious from the dead. For as Peter says on the day of Pentecost, it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Anglicans, I think, do funerals pretty well. We know this because every time I go to visit another church, I often see things stolen out of the Anglican prayer book that are being used. We do funerals well. Because whether you're the queen or the pauper, you have the same liturgy. And that liturgy from the opening sentence, which is, I am the resurrection, I am the life and runs all the way through to the commendation in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life, we commend our sister, our brother to you, almighty God. In every moment, the liturgy is declaring Jesus' defeat of death. We are declaring that death has been beaten by Jesus. As John Donne wrote, death be not proud though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Jesus 
comes to defeat death in his own person. But you may say, let's find the good that Jesus denounces death, calls it for what it is, an evil usurper, is angry at death. And you may say, oh, it's all good and well that Jesus has defeated death, but you and I still face death every day. One of the things that early believers struggled with, the first generation believers, was after the first Easter, some of them were shocked that Christians kept dying. They thought, well, didn't the resurrection mean that death is over? And it took Paul and other teachers in the first century to explain, like in 1 Thessalonians 4, that no, there is this moment coming that Scripture has shown us where together the dead will be raised. There is a final moment together where we will enjoy this final defeat of death. But now, yes, we still continue in this world to suffer the reality of death. And the, and the signs of death, disease, disability, pain, suffering. We face death all day long, Scripture says. So what comfort is there when the enemy of death that's denounced and defeated is still around? Well, Jesus says, when, I say, when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, He's claiming that in him, death is also disarmed. In our experience of living, the power of death is disarmed in our life now, disarmed through belief, disarmed through faith. See, this whole passage is about faith. The whole thing's about faith. Look at verse 25, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever dies, though they, be whoever, though they die, yet believes in me, will have life, and though they live, if they believe in me, will never die. Do you believe this, he says? And Mary says, I believe. And if you go back to even before he gets to Bethany, in verse 14 and 15, he tells his disciples, he says, for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there when Lazarus died, so that you may believe. Let us go to him. And after this whole story of Lazarus raised from the dead, verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. It's all about belief. The whole point of this is about where we put our trust. That's what the word belief means in the Greek. Faith, pisteo, belief, trust. And let me be clear. It's not like there's some people in this world that live by fact and other people live by faith? No. We all make all our decisions based on what we believe to be true. When you go for lunch today at a restaurant after church, you are making that decision based on the belief that the health inspector has been thorough. I just ruined everyone's lunch, I know. <laughs> but we live, we make our choices based on what we believe. How does what we believe about death what we believe about Jesus impact the way we live now as we face down a world full of death. For 2,000 years, those who have believed in Jesus' claim that he is the resurrection and the life have experienced the disarming of death, have experienced what it means to walk without the fear of death. In some great measure, 
or in our worst weeks at some very poor measure, but we experience what it means to have death disarmed. Death does not have the final word. Death does not have the final say. I can live my good full life even in the face of death because of who I believe Jesus to be. This is why Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, that amazing declaration of the resurrection. Paul says at the very end, he says, mocking death. He says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren. Remember, whenever you see a therefore in Scripture, you've always got to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? Right? Therefore, based on everything I just said, based on my mocking of death, death's defeat, therefore, because of what Christ has done to death, therefore, my beloved brethren, be always steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. How can Paul say this? He can say it because he knows that faith in this one who's defeated death disarms death for us now. We will face death all day long, but it will not destroy us. It will not immobilize us. It will allow us with faith to stand and to thrive and even to find joy and hope in the midst of death. When I was in Ottawa, I had an ancient priest who had retired and was an honorary assistant of mine. His name was Father Freer Kennedy. Uh, for those of you who know French, know that that's a bit of a strange name for a priest because Freer en Francais means brother. So he was Father Brother Kennedy. And uh, he was actually named after a monk. That's why they called him Freer. Father Freer. And Father Freer um, revised his funeral plans regularly. He was always in the business of revising his funeral plans. And so much so that I knew where I stood with Father Freer based on what my role was within his funeral planning. And so I would actually get calls from my secretary who would say, Father Paul, I just want to let you know that Father Freer called the church today and he's removed you from being the preacher at his funeral, which would be you know, a sign, I better go visit Father Freer and see how he's doing. But for Freer, contemplating his funeral, contemplating his own death and planning it as a celebration, rejoicing in the Lord, was an act of faith, an act of love, an act of disarmament. He was disarming the fear of death as he faced down death by planning his funeral. So you all should this week call Father Stephen and plan your funerals. We, we should. We should think about what does it mean to face down this moment that's coming. What hymns will be sung? What scriptures will be read? Who shall do the various parts of the service? Because this act of faith is a way that we disarm the fear of death. There is nothing to fear because of who Jesus is. Death is disarmed as ordinary Christians believe that Jesus is the resurrection and is the life. And that's where courage emerges. What is Jesus claiming when he says, I am the resurrection and the life? He's claiming that in him, death is 
denounced. He calls it what it is, an evil usurper, never meant to be. To know that our God is angry in the face of death. But he doesn't just denounce death, he defeats it on the cross in his death and resurrection. As we come each and every week and gather as a community, we put the death and resurrection of Jesus right in front of us. So we can see the defeat of death. You don't need to wait for your funeral. You come to the Eucharist every week and you experience a funeral liturgy, as it were, where we celebrate his victory and defeat of death for us. And he's claiming that therefore death is disarmed. He gives us this gift of faith. Believe in me. Believe who I say I am. Believe who I've proved myself to be to you again and again. Believe it and see death disarmed in your life. The first church funeral that I participated in was a funeral while I was in seminary for a dear, lovely old lady named Ada McKenzie. Now, what's important to remember is that as Ada got older, her hearing got worse and worse. Ada was a faithful believer. And in her last hours, she was asked by the pastor, Ada, you know that you're nearing death. Are you fearful? And Ada responded with the biggest smile she could muster and said, yes, I'm very cheerful. (laughs) This is what it means to believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That whoever believes in him, though they die, yet shall they live. And whoever lives and believes in him shall not die forever. The question that Jesus asks Martha is the question that he's ultimately asking to each and every believer. And it's the most important question that we can answer. Because depending how we answer it, our lives can be transformed. Do you believe this? And Martha said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.